from the ashes a fire shall be woken, a light from the shadow shall spring, renewed shall be the pod that was broken. My brother, my captain, my podcast, the crownless again shall be king. Reforge the sword. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is There Is No Ship Now, our fourth episode on 2003's The Lord of the Ring, The Return of the King. And we are the kings that are returning, I think. (laughs) I think it's our fourth episode as well. I'm not entirely sure. We'll see if we know how to do this thing. Um, Our spoiler warning for this episode, while the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we'll also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. So, Emily, it's been a while. (laughs) (laughs) Que tal? What's Hmm. up? (laughs) How's it hanging? Um, There's a... Uh, there's an Australian comedian, I think he's Australian, yeah, Australian comedian Tom Cardi, um, who does some incredible songs um, that I, like, I turn into, like, a boomer mother, like, squinting at my phone screen whenever he, like, shows up on Twitter or Tumblr or whatever just to watch because I'm so, like, enthralled. But he's got this, like, song about D&D and about playing D&D with a bard um, and how, like, all the other classes get wiped out, but the bard is, like, always around and does chaotic things, including... Um, after obliterating a child that the party is trying to find and rescue, um, um, the bard proceeds to then loot that body. Um, and that's the chorus of that song. It's like, loot that body. Um, I've had that in my head for the last couple weeks because I quit my job, um, but I quit my job to the tune of quit that job. Um, so yes, that's <laughs> the level of like yellow wallpaper absurdity that I've been on. Um, how are you? Uh, good. Um, I've been gainfully employed, <laughs> and uh, it's actually funny because we've re- literally like switched roles from where we were when we started this podcast. Um, I've accepted my role as the heir to the throne of Gondor, and um, I don't know. You were killed at Amon Hen, and are That's drifting fair. down the yeah. waterfalls. Ideal. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, it was good. Um, I went to New Orleans for the holidays uh, with my family. Um, that was pretty fun. The food was great. Um, traveling with family, especially extended family, is a little more <laughs> challenging than I remember. Um, but all in mostly good ways. It's just, you know, I'm a spry 40-year-old man who's able to walk everywhere and go everywhere. And when you have, you know, parents and aunts and uncles who are above the age of 65, um, that's not feasible for everyone. But... Um, it was good. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It was cold. Um, I've just figured the bayou would be warmer than Chicago. It wasn't. Oof. Um, but uh, otherwise, it's been pretty solid couple of months. I can't even remember when we last recorded October. Um, I, oh, I don't even know if there was a genocide happening back then. Well, there was, but just not the yeah. one that we're talking about. It now. had worse branding. Uh, yeah, much, much worse. <laughs> Um, but, uh, have you seen or watched or played anything of late that you want to talk about here? Uh, no, I'm a monk, actually. I was reading and improving myself, and I can now levitate, um, through meditation, 
actually, um, what happened that was really fun was that there was a global Adderall shortage. Um, And so I behaved exactly as you imagine someone who has been on Adderall for 10 years and um, suddenly went through a shortage behaved. Um, So I did a whole bunch of, I clocked up, like racked up like 300 hours in Baldur's Gate 3, um, forced my partner to play Jedi Survivor, although we're like halfway through, um, not even halfway through, I don't think Marin's just shown up, um, and also watched a shit ton of movies, um, including, and I have to, like, we're like, what, two minutes into this and I'm already having to publicly eat shit. I think I may have said this on mic um, when the trailer for Napoleon came out, but I think I literally said, this is going to be my return of the king. <laughs> I was really excited for it. <laughs> it just did not go like that at all. Or maybe it did, actually. Maybe, maybe this feeling that I have about Napoleon the movie is what I would have felt about Return of the King if I'd seen it in 2003. It, yeah. It's a pretty loose adaptation with some pretty big highlights in terms of set pieces. Does it really get the gist of the material? Mm. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I think Return of the King gets a lot closer to. <laughs> um, I mean, I would say, uh, yeah, you. I don't know. Um, yeah, why, why, let's talk about Napoleon because this was a movie I was looking forward to. Um, not necessarily because I expected it to be great but I definitely expected it to be a thing. And I would say it definitely was. Um, It was basically directed by Austrian foreign minister Metternich. It seems like (laughs) um, because this was the most like anti Napoleon take possible. Really? Um, I kind of feel like Ridley Scott was going for the, like he was basically Hitler before Hitler vibe, um, but also like stupider and hornier, which I'm down for the horniness. There was some fun stuff uh, in regards to that. Um, I don't, there's the Simpsons joke about the movie honk if you're horny and Napoleon literally does that in this movie. (laughs) Um, I don't know. It's, it's one of the movies I'm like completely like two faced about. Cause like the parts I liked, I like loved, like I thought some of the battles were awesome. Uh, Maybe it was just like seeing actual a hundred people on like a screen at once and they're not all like AI CGI abominations, but actual people. Yeah. Um, I think some of that was nice. Um, but then pretty much the characterization, the angle <laughs> that they took, I, I I couldn't really make sense of it. I mean, I could make sense of it, but it's more of a why. <laughs> why did they do this? Yeah. Why did he do this? I, I think it's just like the, the problem. I'm going to use British here, but there was actually a bit more kind of pro-Napoleon sentiment in the sort of outlying um nations of of britain so wales to let to very small extent there was some napoleon sympathy um in wales um um but in scotland there certainly was a, a bit more certainly not mainstream but a bit more but like basically the british psyche the british kind of um mind i suppose struggles to make sense of napoleon because like without getting too kind of into the details of it like napoleon is essentially this great liberator um of of europe like like genuinely um he he really does bring civilization to the rather uncivilized um world of western europe um he brings the rule of law to a bunch of people who like still think that like fucking checking the pope's shoe color is a way to like decide guilt um although also to the protestants um and and like (laughs) revives this kind of like 
the Europeans have long hungered for the return of the Roman Empire. Um, and the guy who kind of gets closest to it um, is Napoleon. And I don't just mean that in terms of like scope of and scale of of the like geographical empire, but in terms of like the actual influence, in terms of the changes like done unto like the like native populations, like Napoleon's kind of the guy who does it. Um, and so the Brits who 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 have like a congenital need to be like ruled over by like I use this term loosely by a tyrant, like respect that because they're like ah a strong man, we must love this. This is father dearest now. Um, but then also he's French. <laughs> um, and so then they're like, ah, shit, but he's French, which means he's a he's a shagger with syphilis and a freak and he's two foot tall. And also, like you're saying, literally Hitler. Um, and I think that is basically Ridley Scott's problem um, in in that movie um, is that he's just it's a British man really struggling to make sense of like what the rest of the world has kind of quite comfortably made sense of about 100 years ago. Um, um for me it was like interesting because like the the movies tv movies tv shows tv episodes whatever that i really like about the napoleonic wars is sharp um starring Mm -hmm, none other mm -hmm. than boromir sean bean um and and sharp um is a great series because it kind of goes well fuck it everyone's a bit shit here um and and then just really focuses on like guitars wailing to play over the hills and far away or like Sean Bean basically being cool. And I wish that, like, Ridley Scott had done that. Because, like you're saying, the battle scenes... I mean, well, I don't know. Maybe this is a, a maverick take. But, like, those felt like the most successful and interesting battle scenes to me of anything since Return of the King. Um, like, in the 20 years it's been, I don't think I've seen anything that has gotten close to the the highs of the Return of the King. Um, like, to the Ride of the Rohirrim in particular. Um, then what Ridley Scott was doing <laughs> to very odd effect uh, in this movie. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah. Cause I feel like, cause there was definitely like a war movie craze. And I think it really started with Braveheart, which we've talked about on this podcast. And that's also when you got like saving private Ryan and Terrence Malick's thin red line. And I felt like return of the King is almost like a cap to that. Like there were still a couple big war movies after that, but I feel like, it's just not as prominent as it was. And I can't think of anything really, especially of the same kind of like, I don't know, horses and like swords and maybe a little bit of musketry, like nothing really as good as this. And that includes other Ridley Scott movies, right? He's made like five movies, like a Robin Hood. Um, the last duel was cool, but they didn't really do any big battles. And the big battle they kind of had um, at the beginning was kind of like they shot it at kind of a smaller scale than it probably was. I don't know. Um, yeah, oh my god! Yeah, I, I, I think that's that. fair. <laughs> yes, um, that is true. I guess there were some in Kingdom of Heaven too. I guess Three Hundred is a big war movie, but I think that's fucking shit. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, no, I loved it. I loved uh, especially uh, the Battle of Yena. I think it was the uh, battle in the middle of the movie on the ice field. Um, they kind of showed it in the previews, um, and that one um, I specifically love. I'm sorry, it's. We've been back for now 10 minutes and I have to talk about Game a song of, of Ice and Fire. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, there's a battle. So it's the battle hasn't even happened in the books yet. We're, we've been waiting 12 years for that. <laughs> and the show kind of just didn't do it. They just 
um, kind of killed Stannis Baratheon off in the north. But what's actually happening, the the good shit, is that he's actually like marching on Winterfell and there's like going to be this big battle at a village. And his whole thing is he's basically going to get the Freys and the Boltons to march out onto an ice field. And then, you know, basically what happens in the movie where um, they break the ice and the entire army gets frozen and plunged underwater. Uh, like all that stuff was super cool the way they staged it. Um, especially because, like I said, it was given away in the previews, um, but they still were able to like build suspense in the moment, the way that Napoleon and the French were able to turn the armies. I don't think this has anything to do with the actual Battle of Vienna, um, <laughs> but um, that's why it's like, I'm pretty sure really Scott just came up with, I want to do these battle scenes and then just try to take someone to retrofit to what he wanted to do. Yeah, um, yeah. It's a it's an approach I kind of respect, like in a really sick way, because that outcome of the battles was so good. I just wish that like it wasn't Napoleon. I don't know. Like maybe that's like, yeah, it's a, like really hypocritical of me, but like pick anyone else. Yeah, like honestly, if he had done like Genghis Khan like this, I'd be like, yeah, that's dope. <laughs> but, yes. Like, and I know Genghis Khan didn't really have cannons, but like there's like five people like ever that like i feel like their legacy should actually be somewhat preserved and napoleon's like one of them yeah um whereas like pretty much any historical figure especially from like medieval europe from like 476 ad through like 1789 essentially you could have done it with any of those schmucks and i would not care (laughs) um whether it's Longshanks or henry tudor um, Louis the Fourteenth. I don't care if it has anything remotely resembling reality. I would not care. But it's God. like Napoleon's like the one guy who actually did something worthwhile. Yes. Um, and like that's why it's kind of a bummer because the two things I flagged that were not mentioned at all in the movie were the dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire and like the passage and application of the Napoleonic Code. Yeah. Which are like two huge like you know world-shaking events in my opinion yeah um and like that that doesn't even get a footnote or a yada yada over they're just completely not mentioned yes i oh my god um just you giving that time frame there of like guys who whose reputations you can fuck with has actually made me think that this napoleon movie um would have been much better suited to being a bonnie prince charlie movie and the cliff notes there for like the vast majority of people who don't know who the fuck Bonnie Prince Charlie is, is he was um, Charles Edward Stewart, who was the pretender to the Scottish throne. Um, basically, um, the throne of England passed to um, one of the kings of Scotland, James VI, and first, later the first. Um, and so the two mm-hmm. crowns, the English crown and the Scottish crown, came together in one guy. Um, that guy fucked off down south to London and never came back to Scotland. Um, and uh, his um, line carried on there, but then there were, like, all these branches, and a bunch of them were like, well, hey, why is our crown suddenly unified with the English crown? Isn't this kind of the thing that we've been avoiding? So another aristocrat was a pretender, the Stuart, um, via the Stuart line. Um to the throne of Scotland, and it, he was a Catholic, and that's important because the the British monarch, so the English mm-hmm. and Scottish monarch, was Protestant. 
Um, and he spends a lot of his time over in France and then gets the most piddly, pathetic fucking army um, and tries to come back into Scotland to retake the, the throne. Um, and these are the Jacobites. Um, and and Bonnie Prince Charlie, Charlie is an interesting guy because he's a massive loser, massive specky ginger loser um, with serious delusions of grandeur. Who does actually manage to rout um, the the English a couple times? Well, the British, I should say, actually more accurately, because it was mostly Scottish guys who were fighting him. Um, but then pulls this absolutely batshit move of trying to march all the way down uh, to London from from Scotland, which is a good five hundred miles, um, and obviously gets his shit rocked. But he's a guy with all these odd idiosyncrasies, with some pretty blowout, fantastic battles. The Battle of Culloden is pretty legendary, um, uh, and um, and also like you know, basically fuck that guy. Um, he's a monarchist loser. Like, yeah, there's a bit of oorah, free Scotland, whatever. Um, but he's a loser um, and pathetic. Um, and that would have been a great, like if they had made Joaquin Phoenix play Bonnie Prince Charlie, it would have been a 10 out of 10, no notes movie. Um, Cause he's just a loser. It didn't impact the world in any meaningful way, except cursing us with the TV show slash book series Outlander. So I would have been totally in favor oh, of that character assassination. That's what that is. Yes, that <laughs> loser. <laughs> okay, okay. Th- now it's all clicking. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's funny. I was just I literally just started a podcast or listening to a podcast about the British Empire, and it basically starts with the 16th and 17th century. And the, I don't think the host mentioned what baby Prince Charlie, whatever body <laughs> Prince Charlie. <Yes. laughs> I like. Uh, such an insignificant footnote. It didn't even make the podcast, apparently. Yeah, um, he shows up. Uh, he might have gotten a quick mention. So he's um. Oh, it, oh, oh! Then I'm not there yet. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, Got a ways. Um, okay. Regrettably, it's oh, pretty close to uh, water. And like the, <laughs> uh, the other thing is, um, in the what at Waterloo, I guess it is. Like they show the Duke of Wellington busting out the square formation that Napoleon actually invented while part of the Army of the Orient. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which I thought was kind of like. What what are we doing here? And and it's like in the in the movie, it's like oh shit, Duke of Wellington know what knows what the fuck he's doing, and it's like no, he didn't he didn't do this, <laughs> he didn't invent this. Yes, um, the English it, as always like, appear not... confident by theft, like outright theft. They've never had an original thought in their lives. Yeah, um, so it is. It, it's just got problems, but like Joaquin Phoenix is. I don't think he's the right person to cast, mm-hmm. but I think he did some admirable stuff in the role. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought Vanessa Kirby was absolutely the correct person to cast. Oh, yes. Um, and then um, I was a big fan of uh, Tay Colma from Andor showing up, as did <laughs> yes. Lara Strong from House <laughs> of the Dragon. Um, it had a very fun supporting cast. Um, I would have put more thought into who they cast cast for Robespierre, but yep. I mean, they were they dealt with him really quickly, so I guess that didn't really matter. Um, who was the, was it Bara that was working with him, uh, through the yeah. first like third of the movie? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, I mean, it, it would, I mean, I, I was, I would be technically just kind of looking for a different movie with my thoughts on like the first third of it, like during the revolution and the consulate. Um, but that's neither here or there. It just, it had a completely dubious take on who Napoleon was, but like, I guess with that dubious take, there was still a lot of fun to be had in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's like um, it. It felt like a movie in want of a message, um, and not that like all movies have to be sort of moralizing things. But the the last duel 
um, did some pretty anachronistic stuff, <laughs> not least the fucking Boston accents, um, the incredible <laughs> Boston accents. Um, but like it, it, I was happy, not just willing to, but happy to overlook those anachronisms because like it was clearly doing, allowing those things or choosing to do those things in pursuit of, um, uh, something coherent. Um, it was, it was clearly trying to do the, the sort of Rashomon vibe, the, the look at how badly women have been treated, look at how badly women continue to be treated, look at how embarrassing men are when, you know, the, the kind of patriarchal control is questioned or at risk. Um, this is a thing that transcends time, like, cool, fine. That's why we got Southie accents going on, whatever. Um, in Napoleon, <laughs> not so clear <laughs> what the point of any of it was, really. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. You don't have to do everything for a point, but if you're going to ask for like three and a half hours of my time, I am going to want to know at least a little bit <laughs> why I'm sitting here. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's just because um, like kind of like the first major biopic I remember watching, I basically had to watch it, was the Ben Kingsley Gandhi movie. Um and at the very least, and I have, you know, issues with that movie, it's like they basically hit all the things you would read in a history book about Gandhi, you know, and generally history books are bad, uh, but like it kind of hit all the big things. But like this didn't even like try to like, like I figured, oh, we'd have like an army of Italy, like little part of the movie. I think we'd had, I thought we'd have more time in the army of the Orient, but they literally only had that. So uh, Napoleon could like bomb a pyramid and then kiss a mummy. <laughs> Um, it just like, it wasn't like when you say it, it wasn't even trying to be like, this was the guy's life in a two hour. Cause it wasn't right. No. It, it was just like, here's some stuff I think is cool. And we're just going to make it Napoleon. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a weird montage. And like, I'm not opposed to it except that I don't trust English people with French history is basically like the kind of crux of this. Like, I think you, if you are an English director, um, you really have to convince me that you're not an idiot when it comes to French history. And I don't think that that actually uh, happened at any point in that movie. Uh, but man, were the well, French circuses this... like there. <laughs> well, let me turn this on you. Is there something you would trust Ridley Scott with? Ha ha, yes. Um, oh, God. I'm going to regret it as soon as I say it. Um, I have a list going of like directors that I think could do Tolkien could it could adapt Tolkien and and generally by that I mean things that are not the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit because I don't want the Hobbit ever again um but um I I think Ridley Scott in light of the last duel in particular but also you know what like in light of how Josephine is handled in Napoleon um possibly a little bit because of Vanessa Kirby and just she could do anything and I'd be like oh queen um but <laughs> but i think that like ridley scott could do a really convincing turn with parts of the silmarillion like i think the story of erethel erethel and Aeol that would be great um i think that like um the the kind of the more desperate battles in the war of the elves and sauron like that would be handled really well i think this that kind of um stochastic i suppose approach to history in fact i think would work quite well in the silmarillion um and i would feel slightly less defensive of it because i'm not trying to defend like the modernization of europe um against the <laughs> angry feudal brits in quite the same way with the silmarillion <laughs> um no i mean i kind of have the same vibe i know we already talked about a song of ice and fire but like 
if they had let Ridley Scott do like the last two to three seasons of Game of Thrones, I think I'd generally be happier with how that whole thing went. Um, if nothing else, that he would do this fucking ice battle and like have people <laughs> bleeding under ice and drown. Like that that would be enough to improve at least four episodes out of the last eight. Um, so like, I, like, I think there is stuff he could do. There's stuff in his wheelhouse and there's stuff I would like Ridley Scott to take on. Um, <laughs> it just, I guess Napoleon isn't one of them. And I guess that just comes down to the inherent Britishness of the man. Yes. Um, a sin that we all must bear. But <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, one more thing I want to talk about really quick is you mentioned Jedi Survivor. Um, this is the, I think it's a EA game um, that came out last spring. Um, I also played it since we last convened this podcast. Um, and to me, honestly, it might be the best Star Wars things um, outside of Andor in the last like 10 years. Yeah. Um, maybe that's not true. I actually recently rewatched The Last Jedi and I still love that movie. Yeah. But um, Jedi Survivor, uh, fantastic. Like, Heads and heels above anything that Disney Plus has put out again, except for Andor. <laughs> um, they, they actually gave Cal Kestis somewhat of a character this time. And I think part of that is aided by the fact that they do kind of a time jump and they kind of let you fill in some of the, you know, the part of the story is kind of filling in like kind of what happened to him since the end of the first game. Um, his supporting cast is incredible in this uh, game. Like all the NPCs and side characters you meet. There's a lot of great little guys. There's another gay slug. Um, <laughs> there's a turtle, the like froggish yes. turtle guy. Um, Scuba Steve, which I'm going to let you talk about because he's clearly Scottish. <laughs> um, it just, it's a fantastic, like it has all the trappings of Star Wars that are like you like, like, you know, random weird characters and cool spaceships and all that. But then it also has just a really solid story going with it as well. A good Star Wars story, that is to say. Yeah. Okay. So I'm kind of interested in this because like I'm a really kind of, I'm just kind of a lazy gamer. I just kind of take video games like at a really surface level. Um, and if they're bright and shiny and entertain me for hundreds of hours, then I clap like a seal um, and don't really think more of it than that. Um, but one of the things that I was really struck by, I'm, I should say, I'm not actually playing it. I can't cope with the, the camera in this game. I have uh, my partner Connor play it on the projector um, and I sit and watch it and then backseat drive in what is, I'm sure, not <laughs> a completely annoying thing for him to deal with. Um, but um, it, it seems to me like the mechanics... Um, of the game like aren't particularly revolutionary um like it seems like it's kind of a mixture of like souls with kind of zelda style dungeons um and i don't even know like i like i can tell that the things that they're doing aren't revolutionary um but i can't tell you why i i just feel like it's part of like a, a video game lexicon that like i know is out there but i just don't uh, like, I don't know it. I don't have a frame of reference for it. Do you feel like that is like a, like for you as someone who's who's quite a bit more serious of a gamer, do you feel like that's kind of like a hindrance or like a boon to, to the game? Like, do you think that that like the kind of reuse of the mechanics, not really introducing or adding anything to like video games as a whole, like how do you think that works with the, the kind of thing that they're doing with Survivor? Um, I think it works great. Um, because I'll say this, um, the other game I played in the interim is, uh, Sony's Marvel something Spider-Man two. Um, and I feel like for these kind of like IP triple a games, like kind of finding a formula that works, not necessarily reinventing the wheel. We're not looking for a Zelda or an Elden ring here. We're looking because 
really a lot of the people buying Spider-Man, a lot of the people buying Jedi Survivor are buying it for that Spider-Man or Star Wars wrapper on a game format that they're familiar with or mm. and something that's fairly easy to pick up and play. Um, I don't think people who are buying Jedi Survivor want the difficulty of an Elden Ring per se, even though you could say that that Souls-like combat is the core gameplay component of this. I would say it's like half that, half yeah, kind of that Zelda exploration and then half like uncharted like climbing puzzles. Mm. Um and like um and there's a there's a little bit of a like a mat- Metroidvania like aspect to it in the sense where you can see like parts of the map, um, but you have to come back to it later with a new item or a new ability. Um, but it's like there, like, you know, on the first screen of a map when you land on a new planet, but you can't get to it until you go to other planets and come back to it. So um it's kind of piecing itself together from three to four other game formats. And I think the first one, Jedi Fallen Order, I think it's called, was also doing this. But you see that it's kind of building upon, like the same way that the Souls games iterated on themselves. You see like Jedi Survivor introduces like five or six different fighting stances, um, which was something that I think the Souls game added with uh, Sekiro, um, because that's more of a straight up sword fighting uh, samurai game. Um, It's also something that was very commonly seen in Ghost of Tsushima, um, where you have like different fighting stances and that allows you to do different maneuvers, gives you different sorts of like speed and power. Um, So it it's not I think you're exactly right that it's kind of like a collage of other game formats, but they're doing them all really well and doing them all really well in conjunction with each other so that when you are going from a Uncharted style climbing puzzle and then immediately slipping into a lightsaber battle it doesn't feel like you're playing two different games um everything kind of still feels the same and like i don't know they do a good way of like making things like the force like you have like force things you can do while traversing and you have force things you can do in battle and the fact that those things feel similar really give it a cohesive feel and make it like an enjoyable experience i think yeah it's kind of a loaded question like it was kind of a loaded question for me basically because i saw people on reddit bitching about it and i hate people on reddit they can all go do one um but like for me watching it um the thing that i i I find i think the cohesiveness i think that is like really key and it's also like the fact that um it it never feels like you're having to puzzle through not just the puzzles but puzzle through any like one new game mechanic so long that you kind of lose sight of the story um like sitting and watching it um and watching connor play it even when he's like struggling with a fight or whatever and it feel it doesn't feel any different to like a cinematic experience um and it really feels like the 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 story which is so strong i mean we're really only a couple hours 10 15 ish hours into it um um marin has seriously only just showed up um like that feels really strong um, it was a thing I loved about Fallen Order. I loved sitting and watching Fallen Order as well because it just felt like I was mm-hmm, watching mm-hmm. a slightly longer version of a Star Wars movie. Um, but Survivor just has it, Survivor and Fallen Order to me. They feel like these really industrial versions of Star Wars, and and that that puts it in this kind of um, lineage now with Andor, which is like this very heavy industry Star Wars, um, and and Rogue One to a lesser extent. Um, um, it, Rogue One is certainly of that kind of same grittiness, but not quite as industrial. Um, um, but also like a new hope where it's kind of the post-industrial it's the the rusty everything's mm-hmm, rusty mm-hmm. everything sucks now um I, I, and there's just something like in that that feels so much more organic um and and makes the story even if the story itself like feels 
well, from what I've seen so far, we've got an anime villain um, in leather pants mm-hmm. um, and um, a guy in a Gundam suit. Um, that's all I've seen so far, really, of the story beyond the usual empire. Um, and that's like a bit, you know, campy, whatever, but it just feels that bit more organic and it just feels more a bit like in the vein of the the kind of original trilogy of Star Wars where you can do whatever like kind of strange and funky archetypes that you want um, or characters that you want. And um, so long as you ground it through this sense of like, God, we are just living through the long 1970s and, and Survivor really <laughs> feels so close to that. Even down to like, it's kind of a spaghetti Western almost. Like you've got mm-hmm. this like, frontier town and you know the guys at the saloon like all of that just feels so of a piece with the the kind of original spirit of 70s 80s star wars yeah it feels like they took like the most isley cantina and made a game out of it almost um rather it's like it's a game that actually wants to situate you into star wars where i feel like games like say battlefront are like you like shooting lasers and like flying around hoth so it's like very much trying to like capture like just what it was in the movies it's like i want to do the thing that was in the movie whereas this is very much like what makes star wars special it's what made andor special right it's like we love like having these like rich settings with characters that are memorable i mean think about how many like bullshit characters you can name from andor like take colma should not be a name that anyone can like (laughs) recite from memory but we can because that's how good that show is now tell me who the second lead was in like mando season three um I don't know. <laughs> um, th- so it like cr- really created that world. I think that main world, what like Boda or Bodhi, um, or maybe, no, that's the name of the guy you're working with. But yeah, <laughs> like that frontier town, Navarro, I think it is. Um, th- like it like feels like a real place. You meet people. Um, you basically build your own kind of like base camp where you can go, you can play music. Um, I don't know. It it gives it a kind of lived in feeling where it's not just like a simulation of doing Star Wars things. You're actually kind of in the Star Wars. Yes. Um, It's it's a very kind of like, (laughs) I know that's a really kind of just like kind of rhetorical difference I'm accentuating, but I don't know. It's got a feel to it that's different from other Star Wars games. Yeah. It considers the consequences of Star Wars, I think. Um, And and not Mm -hmm. in the like consequence of me having the force is that I can do laser fighting. It's um, what does it mean for there to be a galactic empire? Well, it means that the only place in the galaxy that you can be safe from the empire is literally an uncharted planet um, that everyone has lost the key to. Um, or, um, you know, what does it mean when not everybody wants to be a hero? Like, not everybody wants to be a hero forever. Sometimes people just want to settle down and and go their own way. What does that mean when you're a Jedi and you're hunted? Or what does that mean when you're friends or... Uh, whatever with a Jedi, like, how does that, um, how does that impact you and, and, and the world? And, and that's what that's engaging with, um, in, in a way that reminds me of my kind of deeply beloved games, um, the Knights of the Old Republic, um, which, um, you know, for being a very early entry into the kind of uh, big, but not big budget, but like kind of big, emph- uh, big attention grabbing kind of RPGs, um, the Knights of the Old mm-hmm. Republic was very concerned with what does it actually mean for there to be a, a universe in which these things are real. Um, and it's nice to see that resuscitated, revived in light of, like you're saying, just the, the kind of soulless, facile crap um, that's out on Disney, which is really just like, you know, if you go look at the Disney Plus, like, 
um, sizzle reels that they've got that autoplay so annoyingly for all of the like mainline shows. You go look at the end or what, and it like shows you people um, or like conversations that are being had. Um, and you go look at the um, Ahsoka one, and it's like, here are three different like creatures lightsabers or spaceships that you've seen in other properties um don't you guys remember those you fucking idiots um and and survivor like you say just seems to fall towards more of like here are the people here are the the conversations that they're having that matters and less of the like here's a loth cat don't you remember star wars rebels now streaming on disney (laughs) plus yeah and the annoying part about this game being so fucking good is when this probably awful mandalorian movie comes out and Cal Kestis shows up, I'm going to be like, hey, there's a character I actually fucking care about now. Yeah. Um, they're they're going to get me with that somehow. And BD1 will be there and he'll be super awesome. Um, and I'll be like, okay, this is a five-star Star Wars movie now. Uh, well, hold on but- hope for having a crushed soul because I love Chopper, um, the droid from Rebels, and I have been told he shows up in Ahsoka, but I will not be watching past the end of the first episode to find out. So you too could feel jaded and cynical and nothing inside when um, BD-1 shows up on, in live action. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Uh, okay, so we talked some Napoleon, we talked about the French, the British, the Star Wars. I, <laughs> you want to talk about Lord of the Rings? Yes. In the misty forests of the Olympic Peninsula, Arwen and Domiel, the even star of her people, contemplates mortality. I'd never given much thought to how I would die. But dying in the place of someone I love seems like a good way to go. Elrond's forlorn command to the elf cortege sets the scene. Arwen is making for the Grey Havens, where a ship will take her across the Sundering Seas to Valinor, reuniting her with her mother and a nightmare blunt rotation of whatever Feanorians or Feanorian <laughs> victims might have already been re-embodied there. Heim slows as a child, not together all too different in blocking to one of them weird fuckers at the Overlook Hotel, runs across the frame, <laughs> with movement unburdened by the weight of the world. We close in on Arwen's face, rosy-cheeked and red-eyed, as openly and beautiful breathed as Mother Mary in Michelangelo's Pieta, or me realizing I forgot to restock the beer drawer in the fridge. The child runs from verdant emerald forest into the gleaming white of a Gondorim city, possibly Osgiliath rebuilt, and into the arms of a much older, but no less hale Aragorn, who swings him around joyfully. The even star, unbroken and undimmed, glimmers around the boy's neck. This, Arwen realizes, is the future she is forsaking if she follows the road to the Grey Havens. Making her peace with death, she turns, 
probably condemning Brett McKenzie to the worst monthly one-on-one of all time, and rides for <laughs> Rivendell. Imladris has now come to the dying days of its autumn. Its warm red palette of reds and orange traded for lavenders and pale yellows, not unlike Arwen's own gown. Here, father and daughter have the same conversation all fathers and daughters have after the latter get their driver's licenses. Tell me what you have seen. Arwen. You have the gift of foresight. What did you see? I looked into your future and I saw death. But there are also sick trips to the Wendy's drive-thru, protests Arwen. They argue tearfully, because I suppose we're just at that part of the movie now. And Arwen whips out some sick-ass poetry courtesy of Mr. Bilbo Baggins. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadow shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. The shards of Narsil are uncovered, and Arwen changes into her best gown yet, a pre-Raphaelite tour de force perfectly suited to just fucking hurling perfectly good books at the floor. Elrond avails himself of Vilya's immense healing powers to provide a keen medical diagnosis. Your skin is pale white and ice cold. The light of the Eldar is leaving Arwen, whatever the fuck that means. There is no Evangelion now that can bear me hence, she tells her father, who is no doubt <laughs> pondering world-souping Aragorn first. But in order to world-soup, Elrond must first go sicko mode. Deep in the land of Eriador, in the fires of Mount Rivendell, the elf lord Elrond forged a master sword, one sword to rule them all. The distribution of swords is, as we all well know, a perfectly fine basis for government. Oh boy, it's it's great to be back. Um, so um, I think we start off this uh, set of scenes on the Oregon Trail, and they are moving their way. Um, so, like, who are these people with Arwen? Are these like you know at the beginning of the Empire Strikes Back, where like Leia is like the last people to leave the base at Hoth because like they have to make sure everyone else leaves? Is that basically what these elves are, or are they just like whoever? I mean, like. Sure. Um, <laughs> it, like, it, yeah, basically it, it is whoever you want it to be, um, because in the books, um, and we sure are back, um, none of this happens, um, and loads of <laughs> elves are still hanging around um, Rivendell. Admittedly, like, a decent chunk have left um, um, and, and are making or have already made for the Grey Havens um, that we know to be true, but, like, a bunch of them are still staying around. Like, there is still very much a war on. Um, and um, it's not really until the end of the war um, and um, 
Elrond's own departure, that the the kind of last of them um, whittle out of Rivendell, and 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 Rivendell is actually left empty, more or less empty. Um, so these guys could just be like Arwen and her thirty closest pals, or they could be like the people who like couldn't find friends to sit with on all the other buses, and so now are like on the loser bus, um, or they're just like the X wing pilots who <laughs> are doing the last stab <laughs> for glory while the walkers come down. Okay. All right, before we get to the kid, um, Arwen looks good here. I think Liv Tyler Hot is on the My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast bingo card. Um, <laughs> but this is like some of the some of the better looking scenes and especially costumes that we see from her. I know we'll talk a little bit later about some of the other ones, but um, what she's wearing here, I guess her Oregon Trail outfit, I should think of a better word for it, um, looks pretty good, right? Yeah, it's this lovely, like, she's got this, like, it's this, I have to stop calling things lavender when they're not. They're, it's lilac. It's lilac. I've learned this from Baldur's Gate. <laughs> <'Cause> I'm an <laughs> adult. Um, um, she's wearing this lilac velvet um, uh, uh, cloak, riding cloak. Um, and, and like, it looks fantastic. And it, it looks really good. It looks really well made. Yada, yada, yada. Um, but the thing that I like about it is that, like, um, it, it washes her out uh, in a beautiful way. Like she still, she's Liv Tyler, so she still looks like an angel, mm-hmm. um, but she looks really washed out. And so the red in her cheeks, like in what could otherwise be quite a healthy kind of look in her face makes her look kind of fucked up. Like she looks sad. She looks like, and I'm really beating the source to death now, but like Bella Swan after um, Edward leaves her <laughs> in New Moon and when she's sitting in that chair for like 10 months on end. Like this is Arwen's look and and it's one of the few times I think that um, the, the the production team um, for these movies has actually kind of really thought about what the colors of the women's gowns are doing to the actresses they put them on. And, you know, they kind of get a cheat code with Gladriel. They just put her in white. So like whatever, of course, putting Gladriel in all white is going to make her look like that. And Kate Blanchett is going to look a certain way but like you know they tend to throw Eowyn in in kind of whatever they pick up off the ground and quite often the coloring <laughs> is not doing her any favors and is is not really conveying what it needs to be conveying um at any given moment but here they really knock it out of the park like she still looks beautiful but but she does look miserable um and it's this kind of um um you know what, actually, fuck it, we're really going for the bingo card. Um, it reminds me of um, Faramir's description of, of Eowyn um, in The Houses of Healing um, in the, the back half of this book, which is like sorrowful but beautiful. Um, and that's that's Arwen's whole look here and, and everything about this costume, especially con- contrasted against the 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 bright emerald greens or deep emerald greens I should say the the really really strong look of the forest um is all about kind of sticking her aside from it all and and making her look beautiful but not quite healthy. <laughs> um. Okay. So let's talk about this kid who very stupidly runs in front of a horse. That's like <laughs> how kids used to die all the time back in the <laughs> Middle Ages. I think. Um. No. This is a vision of. Theoretically, her son, I guess. Uh, at first, she might have thought it maybe it was a bastard son. She's like, fucking Aragon, she's sleeping <laughs> with someone else. Um, but no, uh, the fact that um, the kid looks directly into the camera and says, I am your son, basically, <laughs> um, with the even star uh, showing from his very low-cut neckline. Um, I bet you have thoughts on this scene. Uh, I would never. What do you think? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is actually one of these scenes that, like, um, when we first started doing this, I kind of had this like 
red siren in my head around this set of scenes because because I think everything I'm gonna say here is gonna be really alienating. Um, but I don't care. Um, um, I, I like it's 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 not really a secret that I don't like what they've done with Arwen's character in these movies. Like I like Liv Tyler, of course, but like um, I just think they've done a kind of piss poor job at at making Arwen. Like I I can tell what they're trying to do with Arwen. I think they've done a bad job of of doing it. Um, mm-hmm. I think um, there's kind of an argument to be made that like Arwen seeing her and Aragorn's son, who like is going to be heir to the throne of the United Kingdoms, could be like a really fascinating bit of character development, and that like it could show her to be very ambitious to be the mother of the next son of Gondor and Arnor. Like that makes her Arwen actually very very important um like to be the queen mother is, is actually to well, or the king mother is mm-hmm. actually to be a, a a very significant person in in a kingdom um and it would put her arwen specifically um in contention among um a kind of very esteemed family tree with some of the greats like it would definitely put her above her her elder twin brothers um and certainly above her mother calibrian um but it probably puts her in the pantheon alongside elrond and elros and elwing and erendel and like for a woman like Arwen, who has always existed in the shadow of these these um, gargantuan figures of, of, of history, um, you know the in, arguably like the main characters of um, the elven legends since the dawn of uh, of the earth. Um, like you know, Arwen really needs to find a way, or it's reasonable to expect that Arwen would want to find a way to define herself um, that is not just daughter of Elrond, great granddaughter. Of um, Elwing and Eärendil, great great granddaughter of um, Baron and Luthien, like it, that's reasonable. Um, but I don't think that's at all what they're doing. They are not. This movie is not trying to show a version of reproductive politics that shows that a woman might be able to like um, articulate or transfer her um, limited social power through reproduction through childbirth. Um, actually, it just seems here is like. Um, Arwen's will to live and her her will to die as well is is basically tethered to her status as a mother. Um, her love for Aragorn alone that's not enough to keep keep her in Middle Earth, although it is in the book. Um, but her ability to perform her womanly duties and bear children um, is and and that's a that's a, a bearing of children that is totally divorced from social power. You could probably argue like if you really wanted to, and I don't think it's worth it that she's just like fulfilling the promise of loving all things that grow and are not barren, um, a perfectly Tolkienian motivation. But it's not actually a motivation that these movies are ever concerned with. Like, even Sam um, does not really show a, a particularly strong interest in loving things that that grow and are not barren, except for the fact that he's a gardener, so they occasionally show him gardening. Um, so all of this just, you know, sticks in my craw. But, you know, after we get the Arwen on, on the ride... Um, with Frodo where, you know, if you want him, come and claim him. And she's got a sword and a horse, a white Bronco, and she's out there and doing things. Um, To then have her sort of chief motivation, um, not this potentially legendary love she and Aragorn share, but like, you know, her being a mama um, with a hashtag mama blog, it just kind of sticks in my claw. Um, like I craw even, <laughs> um, and I feel like you could, you know, <laughs> potentially soften it up by like having the child be a daughter. And so then it's not so much about like, oh, it's, you know, the heir or it's just, 
um, you know, a, a child generally, it could be like, oh, this child is truly a product of of her her and Aragorn's love, but that's not how they do it. it it's a it's a male son, but they don't deal with like what Ar- Arwen's relationship to that male son would be. It's all just a bit. It just doesn't feel good. It feels retrograde, even com- in comparison to the story that Tolkien wrote for Arwen in the books. And like as I say over and over again on this podcast, if you're not beating an English Catholic Tory in the year 1945, you're really not doing well. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair read. Uh, I know I think that's like the accurate read because it's definitely not saying anything beyond femininity is motherhood, essentially, in this scene. Mm-hmm. Um, would it be different? Because you noted in the recap that um, it looks like this is all set in Osgiliath, this little vision she has of Aragorn and their son. What if Osgiliath was on like fire behind them? Like they were like Nazgul flying in the air um, and like Aragorn just sitting there with the sun. Like if the world was burning, but she still had a son. Ooh. Ooh. Would that work? I really like that. I hadn't even thought about that. Um, yes, because, because, because then it really does put the emphasis on, on like, her her love for Aragorn um and and her and this relationship that that her and Aragorn have with each other and and then it's it's not quite so much like she'll stay because there's a chance that things will be easier she's staying because she loves Aragorn and she's staying because this potential of life might actually be a kind of a, a sliver of hope um a, among all of this darkness um that's really interesting I really hadn't thought about it like that at all but yes I think like yeah, totally wiping out this potential of them women winning um, and, and of things all going well um, and Aragorn becoming king. I think that does actually make it slightly better. Yeah, because I feel like it, A, it kind of jives a little better with the conversation that she and Elrond are going to have um, like shortly after this, because it's not really like, oh, there's a chance we could win. It's more just like there is still hope. Um, it's almost It's almost like, like in the books where Eowyn laughs at the, I'm going to call him the Night King. What the fuck's his name? The Witch King. The Witch King. <laughs> um, like, you know, it's like he laughs in his face about it. Um, and it's kind of like life in defiance of like the orc world order or whatever. Um, like that kind of has poignancy. Um, whereas it looks like this is just like, oh, this is a cheat code to win. <laughs> if I stay and we have a son and things will all be rosy and Asgiliath will re- be rebuilt versus, you know, the world is on fire, but we're still going to do this, um, yes. which might be somewhat resonant as well with the world we live in. Yeah, because because I think there's also, right, like there's always going to be this point of comparison between Arwen and Eowyn, at least where Aragorn is concerned. And like the love that they show Arwen having for Aragorn is is this kind of convenient love. Um, it is a love where like she is guaranteed the queenship of Gondor, of a Gondor that looks and has been rebuilt and the war is won. Um, and, and, you know, there is a, there is a child and he is the heir and, and well, he is a boy and so he is the heir. And so that's all good and that's all sorted out. But like, that seems to be the condition of her actually acting upon her love, um, for, for Aragorn or putting herself at risk for it. By contrast, um, Eowyn acts upon her love in, in the sort of, um, absolute darkest depths of the war. Um, and so this love that that she ostensibly feels for Aragorn um, is one that is not conditioned upon, you know, sunny weather. Um, and I think, mm-hmm. um, like, uh, you know, on, on paper, th- those two things are, are kind of true about um, 
um, Arwen and Eowyn in the books anyways, but like um, the fact that Arwen sticks around in the books and and does not really, I mean, Elrond makes it conditional upon um, Aragorn winning, but but Arwen's love certainly is not conditional upon um, Aragorn winning and, and her desire to stay is not, not conditioned upon that. Um, and that makes what Eowyn is going through and, and Eowyn's love for Aragorn, um, uh, take on a slightly different sheen, um, and and take on this, this, not, I don't want to say hysteria because that's like so uh, aggressively gendered, but like it comes from a place of desperation. She, she has goodness and hope and love in her heart, but, um, no, none of the men around her are like, um, willing to accept it or do anything with it or or even look upon it either in a familiar or a platonic sense. And so she just takes all of this love that she's feeling and 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 kind of like um power balls it, I suppose, onto to Aragorn. And and we are meant to understand that this is actually not the ideal form of love because it's not a considered love. It's it's a um it's it's not a love that um m- m- helps her um, in any sort of way. Um, and, and, and that inflection point between, between Arwen and Aragorn's relationship and, and Aragorn and Eowyn's theoretical relationship is I feel quite an important one for, for defining all three people. And, and in fact, defining a lot of the, uh, the, the kind of story of Return of the King. And so when you take that kind of unconditional, um, or unconditioned desire, um, out of Arwen's story in the way that they have here, then, it doesn't feel like quite as important of an inflection point and it's quite easy to go, well, what the fuck's her problem? Why would Aragorn not just shack up with Eowyn anyways? <laughs> um, and yeah, speaking of Eowyn, another point of comparison is that Arwen is once again crying in this scene. <laughs> um, like you say, it feels like a long way since the same character rode Frodo all the way to Rivendell being chased by the Nine and now she's crying at an acid flashback that she's having. Um <laughs> It's it, it just one of those things. I don't even have a point here. It's just like once you said it, it's like, yeah, the women are oh, women be crying women every be time crying. you see them in these movies. Um, it just it, you can't unsee it. It's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're doing that. Um, anyways, I want to talk about my boy here for a second. <laughs> My rhymes are polite, like, thank you, Mrs. Johnson, for dinner. That was delicious. Good night. And other times, they're obscene, like a pornographic R-18 dream about bitches smothered in margarine. Ha, 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 ha. They call me the hip hopopotamus. I got flows that glow like phosphorus popping off at the top of this esophagus. I'm not a water-dwelling mammal from Africa that's moved to the metropolis and been taught how to break dance. Where did you get that preposterous hypothesis? Did Steve tell you that? What's he got to do with it? What kind of rapping name is Steve? Steve. Other rappers diss me, say my rhymes are sissy. What? What? Why? Why? What? 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 Be more constructive with your feedback. Why? Yeah. What? What? Yeah. Why, cause I rap about reality Like me and my grandma having a cup of tea There ain't no party like Bananas Tea Party Hey, ho So, uh Brit McKenzie, um, one half of the Flight of the Concords. Um, I went through a really big Flight of the Concords phase in college Um, this was even before their, like, HBO show came out 
Um, if if anyone has HBO Max out there, I assume you do, uh, or Max rather. Um, huh. There's a HBO One Night Stand, uh, which is like an old early two thousands like comedy thirty minute stand up special series that would just have a rotating set of uh, guests. Um, one episode is Flight of the Concords. Um, and that is like the funniest 25 minutes that is not The Simpsons that I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> um, it is good. They perform some of the songs that they would later perform in their own show. Um, but actually, because they do have like a stand-up aspect to their performance, um, them interacting with the crowd is great. Um, them taking every pot shot at New Zealand is great. <laughs> um, and it's cool that they, you know, got Brett McKenzie here. I don't know what his status was in New Zealand at this point, but since they've only been like, Four famous white people from New Zealand, and <laughs> half of them are uh, Britt McKenzie and Jermaine Clement, who sadly is not in this movie. Um, I do like the inclusion of them here, or him. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, because uh, oh god, uh, this is such like a early two thousands, mid two thousands bit of internet lore. Um, it's actually one of the few things I was aware of about the Lord of the Rings before I'd seen the movies. But his character was so beloved by fans, by fangirls in particular, that they named him. Um, they named him Figwit. Um, and I swear <laughs> to God, if you go onto fanfic.net, if it still exists, um, and put in Figwit, it will have more entries, fan fiction entries, than like Eric Gordon will have. Like the fans loved Figwit. And they loved him so much, they brought him back for The Hobbit and gave him an expanded role. Um, and so, like, when the um, the company ends up in um, Rivendell and, like, young, fun Elrond shows up after a hunt, you got Figwit there. Um, I think Figwit's actually the one to, like, welcome them or something. But he was such a big fan favorite. Um, and and I, it's one of the things that I, I like is a little bit of sort of fan history because fandoms for pretty much as long as they've existed in their more or less modern form so like basically from the days of star trek um the original series onwards um fans love picking out kind of random background or side characters and just developing these like extensive backstories for them um the you know there are some versions of this that drive me nuts like what they do with the Barricade Boys in the Lamest 2012 movie. Um, but the mm -hmm, Figwit mm -hmm. one is just so fun because he's just, you know, so beloved. Um, and also actually has a kind of fun um, analog to um, to Andor, which we also love talking about, in in Rue Scott Melshi as a character who um, is like one of the only <laughs> yes. like non-Rogue One crew kind of named characters um, in Rogue One. And the fans went fucking wild for that guy. Um, and so when he shows back up in Andor, because apparently he was a great crack on the set um, and got invited back just purely on a vibes basis, um, loads of fans were like, we've won, we've done it. Um, so yeah, Brad McKenzie, um, uh, apparently just so devastatingly good looking as as an elf that um, he got himself uh, uh, written as sort of like a collective psychosis among Tolkien fans, um, uh, this new elven character of his that has persisted through um, now two or three different movies um, and no doubt will continue to, to haunt us all. So fun little side bit there. Yeah, no, I love it. And now that I'm going to associate with him, Melshi, I'm going to pretend like Brit McKenzie was some like irreplaceable glue guy on the set of the Lord of the Rings, even though he appears in about seven seconds of the final thing. 
Um, he really <laughs> held that cast and production together just by being there with his good vibes. He was actually um, like the size models for both the Hobbits and Gandalf <laughs> all at once. He's just that impressive. <laughs> All right. Well, it's business time, and we're moving over to Rivendell, um, where Arwen rides back to all by herself. Um, pr- probably could have had an escort or something. Feels like she's <laughs> important enough, and the world's at war. Um, no big deal. There's a really cool, like, long shot of Rivendell, um, and you get like see her white horse prancing across like the orange, just gold dot, not dawn, autumn kind of color scheme. It's it's pretty cool. Um, and then she basically, like, you know, Elrond's, like, writing his letters, I guess. Um, and then she shows up. He's like, didn't you already leave for school? Um, <laughs> and that's when he starts or she starts pressing him about, like, did you also have the acid flashback to, like, the kid <laughs> I might have? Um, I don't know. Uh, what do you think of all this? Like, I don't really have. This is awful. I don't really have any thoughts on it because I'll because, like. It, it reaches the point of like kind of just so stupid and not in a bad way. It's just like I struggle to have any sincere thoughts about it because it's all paper thin. Um, and if you think too hard about any of it, then like you're just going to have a migraine. Um, I think like seeing yeah. Rivendell falling apart, that looks cool. Um, it's a nice bit of like, see, everything really does suck. We are really, truly at the end of days here. Um, I think <laughs> Elrond doing business outside, like fully outside. There are like autumn leaves falling on that man's head as he's sitting there writing letters. Like that's a great look. That's a great vibe. Um, the man invented dark academia. Um, the like, <laughs> it's chat- like when you take your laptop onto the patio, right? And like, yes. I'm gonna I'm gonna work this Friday afternoon out <laughs> on my patio and like pour myself a little. Or like have a like a can of beer while you do your emails or something. <laughs> yes, yeah. Like like Elrond was like, all right, wife and kids are out of the house. Like I'm fucking ordering <laughs> some wings in. I'm getting some beer. I'm putting the football on. It'll be grand. And then the daughter shows back up and he's like, ah, shit. Um, so I really feel for him there. Um, I am in fact having one of those weekends myself. Um, so if my um, 1,000 year old daughter bursts through the door to talk about her boyfriend, I will be killing myself. Um, but yeah, like it's just... It's it's not filler. I kind of hate that, but it is a bit filler. It's just, hey, remember Arwen? See, we have women doing things, well, um, and that's it. Yeah, there are a couple things, right? Because they purposefully changed the whole inclusion of Narsil and Anduril into the story, which uh, in the books, um, Aragorn's pretty much carrying that around ever since the Council of Elrond and Fellowship of the Ring. Um, but here they made, and I like this choice of saving the sword till the end, um, also because it allows you to skip over kind of Aragorn being a little bit of a tit at Edoras about the sword. Yeah. Um, but um, I understand what they're doing. The sword becomes a symb- symbol for his kingship, so it's like tied to his ascension. That's filmmaking 101, adaption 101, that's not a huge deal. But because of the way movies generally work and these movies specifically work, you have to actually kind of show like Elrond going into motion, Narsil going into motion, um, and I bet you some of it's also is like we're paying Liv Tyler like nine million dollars. We might as well show her for more because she literally shows up for a kiss at the end of the movie. And like, <laughs> that's pretty much it with her, because um, I honestly don't even know how much we see of her after this. Um, uh, I, I honestly. She dies for a bit. I think that's it. Does she? Does she die? Is that? Oh, when's <laughs> that the Evanescence? Extended edition? <laughs> she's got the thing where she's like on the bed and it's like the bring me to life um, oh. music video the amy lee thing maybe that's in yeah yeah i think um i think those are part of like aragorn's 
Palantir visions, maybe? Yes, or yes, like yes. Stuff like that. Some of it's in the theatrical edition. I know he doesn't really hold the Palantir in the um, theatrical edition. That's more of an extended edition scene. But there is, I can picture that zoom of her like yeah. laying on the bed. It does that like smash zoom and there are leaves blowing behind her on yeah. the floor. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but like, yeah, the- so, you know, she's doing stuff. Yeah, so it, it very much feels like we got to check a box. We got to show this. We built a Rivendell design. You know, we designed a set. Might as well use it one last time. Actually, this is worthwhile. Uh, maybe. Maybe it's it's actually pretty <laughs> meaningless. Um, but um, the, the shot of her, like, coming into the courtyard, she just throws her coat or cloak, like, on the ground, by the yep. way, which fucking, fucking kids, man. Hang your fucking coat. <laughs> um, but, like, that whole stuff is, like, Tell me what you have seen. All of that stuff was in the Two Towers trailer. Um, oh. So I almost wonder if like, because remember there was Liv Tyler going to be at the Battle of Helm's Deep. I almost wonder if like this could have been placed before that in some initial version of these movies oh, where it's like her, she rides back. She's like, there is hope. I'm going to go to Helm's Deep and help out Aragorn. And maybe they would have done some other stuff downstream from that. Um, <laughs> this is all speculation that could probably be easily disproven with a couple of Google searches. But uh, I'm kind of tantalized by the aspect of maybe this really was meant to be somewhere else. And it just kind of got shuffled along here um, because they still needed to kind of get the sword into motion for later stuff in this movie. Mm, that is interesting. Yeah, that actually sounds really plausible. They really, they they really didn't figure out what to do with Arwen and what to do with Eowyn, like until basically the movie went to print. Um, it, yeah, it, there, there are, there are a lot of weaknesses, um, with what they were doing and, and how unclear they were about her. Um, I, I will say like, I, I, I don't begrudge them the sword stuff per se. I like, it's, it's kind of one of the first times we get a montage that looks similar to the prologue montage. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, which and which I like. It's a style that kind of dreamy look and feel, uh, the kind of airiness of it, um, particularly for something that is elven or related to the elves or things done in Rivendell. I really like that, and I think kind of bringing that back in, um, especially at this point um, of the movie where I think it all starts to become a, a little bit more grounded, a little bit like literally grittier. Um, bringing that kind of sense of like legend and ancientry back in via this like i'm fine with that um obviously in my anti-aragorn propagandizing i wish they'd had the sword so that we could have him being an absolute mm-hmm. jackass like lyndon b johnson and his cock at um the at metaseld like that would be aragorn and then everyone would understand why i hate him um but alas uh, that is a battle that i lost before it started um so if it must if it must be said so it will be said um it will be done here um and i think that that montage is just lots of lots of fun the elf smiths i think um with the the kind of buildings of rivendell um cast at night in in the background that's a that's a really beautiful shot that they did there it looks great can't complain about that yeah, no, um, I'm always a fan of like reforging swords. I think that's cool. Um, we had a big discussion about Tears of the Kingdom and how the Master Sword was mm-hmm. reassembled in that. Um, there's a tweet. Um, I should probably save this for when uh, Elrond actually gives Anduril to Aragorn, but I'll just read it again there. Um, <laughs> but there's this tweet from Yuko from Nichiju or Jordan um, at Heads Fall Off. And they said, and the tweet goes like this Me. I am fundamentally opposed to the monarchy and the church as ruling powers. History is a record of their atrocities. 
my therapist. That's fair. Me. But I love it when the chosen king reclaims his divine sword and leads his <laughs> army in glorious battle. My therapist, who doesn't? <laughs> um, and it's just like, I, I, I really like it. And when we get to the paths of the dead, um, like I'm going to complain a lot about what's <laughs> happening about the paths of the dead and everything that happens with there. But I actually do like stopping the ghost sword with Anduril and it like actually being some level of magical coolness. Um, because nothing about it elsewise seems magical. Um, yep. It just kind of is the thing that, and maybe it's not supposed to be. Um, I should read the books one day and figure that out. Um, <laughs> but it's like, it's it basically seems like it has importance, at least in the movies, because it cut the ring from Sauron's hand, right? We're not yeah. told about how it was originally made um, or why it shattered under Sauron's Uggs or whatever. <laughs> but like, we... Like, so it, it almost, it d- doesn't really feel like a magic sword the way, like, say, the master sword feels yes. in the legend of, like, you have to gather these three things before you can even pull this out of the ground or, like, the sword in the stone, whatever, whatever magic sword you want to go with. So I do like that the the one saving grace of the ghost army is I literally like him stopping the ghost pirate king sword uh, with Andoril and giving it kind of that mystical imbuement, even if it's not supposed to have it. Yes, yeah. Uh, like the the kind of the magic of um Tolkien's world. Like there there is some magic that I suppose is, you know, quote unquote hard magic. There's like a spell card that's like take eight points of damage and roll a D4 or whatever. <laughs> um but like a lot of it is like the magic comes from from the words or like from the associations. Um and so things are magical because um because of the things they are associated with. And so by virtue of it being associated with a sealder, um, it, it has a sense of magic to it. Um, and, and, and it's that sort of ancientry and that sort of connection that, that makes it magical, but it's not like doing blue, um, uh, blue beams of light, shooting blue beams of light when Aragorn's at full health. Um, yeah, like I, I agree with you on that. I think, um, I hate the paths of the dead and kind of block it out mentally. So maybe I will revise that opinion <laughs> when we get there. Yeah. And I'm fucking sick of like having to look at the them crunching the skulls for like 10 minutes when they could use that 10 minutes to do anything else from the back half of the book. Um, but yeah, um, I, I just also kind of love the the just the shot of it laid out on the um, on the velvet kind of pillow. Um, because it makes such mm-hmm. a nice contrast to when we first see it, where it's in this kind of cold and dark place, and then, you know, Boromir gets cut by it, and and there's this sense of, like, it is a dangerous thing. Um, it's old, it's dangerous, it's very removed from us. Having it on that kind of soft backing makes it feel like it's something that is, we now understand a little bit better, and it, we, we, the audience, are also now slightly more, or slightly better prepared and better equipped to wield it in, in our own way. Yeah. And I think it's just something that works cinematically in a way that it really can't really work on the page. And I'm not trying to sell Tolkien short here, but this is definitely the kind of thing that lends itself to like the cinematic treatment of the forges and the montage and like the close zoom in on super serious Hugo weaving face. Like, you know, he's super serious and kind of upset by it, but also understands that there's some like hope that he's kindling here. Um, to borrow a Gandalf phrase, I know you won't like that. Um, but I also like that um, Arwen dons her like broken shard taking cloak. <laughs> like she puts on a whole other outfit just to go and get the sword pieces, which I really enjoy. Um, and it's a pretty nice looking cloak. Um, and again, with her like very pale skin and her bright eyes, um, it's just kind of a very arresting symbol. It's almost like the lady with the pearl earring or whatever. Um, but 
Arwen with the broken sword, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it is. I wonder if it's because she was literally like my old cloak touched the ground. I will not be fucking touching that ever again. And then <laughs> makes a servant go get her a new one. Um, yeah, you know, she just she looks more. They're thinking about her as a her character there more as um, as sort of a, a figure from a pre-Raphaelite painting. She's really sort of she's gone from being something tangible that we can touch to, to, to being something that is. Um, as much an object of beauty, and I don't necessarily mean that in the degrading way, but like as much an object of beauty and and um, uh, uh, Guinevere almost um, character um, than she is sort of Arwen as a person. Um, uh, and then they get her into the most pre-Raphaelite gown she anyone wears mm-hmm. um, in this series. I actually can't think of anything that comes close. Um, well, okay, maybe one of Aeon's shittier ones comes close, but I don't care because I hate them. Um, but um, it's the the Snow White gown. I've seen people affectionately call it. It's the it's red and it's blue and it's velvet and it's rich fabrics and it's heavy um, and it looks fantastic. It is probably my favorite gown anyone wears um, in these movies. Um, but the the thing that I really like about it is that it actually has shock and awe um some symbolic value um because with the red and the blue you know reds for life and blues for death and that's a bit trite but you know they're, they're also very bri- vibrant um they're they're vastly more vibrant than than the lilac color she was wearing before and and this is all now kind of symbolizing the fact that within her um she is no longer going passively to her spiritual and emotional death in valinor um just sort of accepting the things that happen to her she's now actively embodying this conflict between life and death and like I will never figure out what the fuck is going on with this whole she gave her life force over to Frodo thing. Um, I think that's all a weird choice and I don't care to interrogate it. But like if that is the choice that they're going with and the costuming that they've done here where like she's got the bright red of life and and this this kind of bold blue of death and they are literally competing on on her body <laughs> um, for dominance and and she is a, 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 a an integral part of that fight like that's great. That's fantastic. That's what all of the costuming should should really be aspiring to. Yeah, no, I think that's all great. Um, yeah, I, the more and more time I think about her, like, life-giving elven hug to Frodo, whatever <laughs> that is, um, it's more, it gets more and more confusing. Um, but I guess with the even star, they're just able to pour all that, like, whatever that plot device is, they can just say, it's the even star or something. Um I guess that's the benefit of them never really defining any of the magic. So, like, when there is something magical, they can just be like, whatever, it's there. God, um, you know what? It's it. the fucking Kylo Ren and Rey thing from the end of um, Rise of Skywalker. Oh, my God. Where they're, like, oh going God. back and forth for, like, ten minutes with, like, zapping each other up and then dying. That It's the same thing. <laughs> so, Arwen and Frodo are a force dyad, is what you're telling me. <laughs> um, yeah. The only other thing I really got is that wh- why'd she drop her book, man? You're totally going to lose your place. Um, somehow it lands perfectly on the page she was. It's like the perfect, like, no page turn fall. But um, as someone who is now, like, in a position where, like, I don't have enough bookmarks at home for the number of books I'm reading at any one moment, um, that's just hazardous. Don't drop your books. Like, um, what is in the book as well like what is this book like does she have like a <laughs> compendium of bilbo baggins's poetry and she's like holy shit this is about my boyfriend or like is it her diary her journal is it like elrond's budget and she's like oh my god he spent all of his money on wings i'm gonna cry like what's going on here why the shock <laughs> 
Oh man, now now I've got to think. What's the funniest book she could possibly be reading? Is it like Infinite Jest, or is no? <laughs> there's probably got to be a funnier one. Um, and then I think one last thing I want to say before we move to our token token is um, we're not going to really be able to talk about it, but the last shot of like the forging of the sword and kind of the build of music as it zooms in on um, Elrond's face, um, it kind of goes into like the kingly Aragorn motif. Um, it's not like a full expression of it, but it's kind of like kind of the Gondor Aragorn theme they're going to use near the end of the movie. Um, and it kind of goes into that, and then it transitions into the full-on like fellowship theme as it's going to cut into the next scene with Gandalf and Pippin riding to Minas Tirith, um, which is a really cool transition. Um, but it's kind of hard to talk about that transition when we're kind of splitting our coverage on on that transition. So I just wanted to mention it here. Um, it's a really good musical transition from a very slow scene to literally like shadow facts showing us the meaning of haste uh, over mm. in Minas Tirith. Yeah, Howard Shore, that's a man who really knows how to transition between two motifs. Every time he does one, it just feels like it's the best thing in the movie ever. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadow shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. Yay! No, that was awesome. <laughs> um, um, I love this poem, um, despite it being about Aragorn. Um, uh, <laughs> there we are I'm a world of contrast um, so Tolkien loves his like language ambiguity um, the most famous example of this is of course but no living man am I um, but like you know he's got these cutesy ha you thought jokes um, scattered that's T-H-O-U-G-H-T not T-H-O-T I realize that may have been ambiguous there um, he's got those kinds of jokes like <laughs> scattered everywhere um, in the text it's 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 his little sort of love letter to himself and his colleagues he, lo- he loves playing with these things um, there is however one instance in which the like ambiguity stuff is not a haha joke and and like again it's kind of one of these instances where I find it frustrating that Peter Jackson and company um, and Fran Walsh chiefly haven't like really fully engaged with that um, ambiguity because I think the ambiguity is one perfectly like plausible um, to uh, engage with in the context of a movie um, and actually probably easier to do than it is in writing um, and and like two wouldn't have detracted from any of what they were trying to do um, uh, with Aragorn or with Gondor or with X Y and Z other things and um, so yeah so so like in a super literal literal ultra boring sense like bilbo's poem to identify strider um like that is just about aragorn like the crownless is aragorn of course um but we don't need to be ultra literal with it and in fact i think like tolkien would encourage us to not be ultra literal with most of the things that he writes um there is a richer meaning here which is the crownless people so the kingdoms of men of gondor and and arnor and um, who once constituted one of the greatest kingdoms of middle earth and who fell into what tolkien sees as like relative ignominy by virtue of having lost their crown like they are also the crownless um this poem is as much about strider as it is about gondor and arnor take all that is gold does not glitter that is an inversion of the biblical aphorism all that glitters is not Mm -hmm. gold 
Um, but here means that things that are excellent do not necessarily look it. So yes, it is, of course, a dunk on Aragorn for looking like shit. Um, but it's also the ruins <laughs> of Arnor and Gondor, um, and Gondor in particular, which still has immense strength within it, but, you know, doesn't look so hot. It's a bit run down. Um, not all those who wander are lost. The wanderings of the Numenorians in Middle-earth, which led to their colonization of literally everywhere from the most extreme northwestern tip of Eriador to the farthest southeast of Harad. These are wanderings in the very literal sense, but they're also purposeful. The men of Numenor are bringing their their message um, into Middle-earth. And then later as, pilgrimage, as pilgrims um, who have fled Numenor as it fell, um, they are also wanderers in Middle-earth, not quite root, uh, rooted via a kingdom yet because you know, various <laughs> problems with Isildur and company. Um, but but they are also wanderers. Um, the old that is strong does not wither. Um, the white tree um, that stands in, in the fountain court of Minas Tirith, yes, that has withered, but Minas Tirith itself has not. Um, even its most cynical detractor, Faramir, who has some harsh words for the state of um, Minas Tirith and Gondor um, in the previous book, in Two Towers, doesn't go that far to say it. Um, deep roots are not touched by the frost. There's literally already a sapling of the white tree in Gondor. Um, we know this because Aragorn finds it after his coronation. Um, so if it is a properly rooted sapling, we know it has to be there already. And that it holds firm through the chill of Mordor's spell. Um, that uh, kind of gets us to where we roughly are in the books to the end of Aragorn's coronation in June mm -hmm. of 3018. Um from the ashes, a fire shall be woken. Um, I could put my tinfoil hat on and say that actually there's something really interesting here and that it could also refer to Denethor's death um, and someone who emerges largely unscathed from it and also kind of represents Gondor um, quite well. Um, who could this possibly be? Um, I won't get too far into that. I will save that one for later. <laughs> but, you know. Yeah. Um, here, let's let's go galaxy brain here. Um, from the ashes, a fire shall be woken. The ashes, to me, are the burnt-down beacons of Amon-Din, and the fire they awake is bringing Rohan into the fold, and essentially nice. that's kind of like the union of the two kingdoms. Um, nice. That's the fire that's being relit, the kingdom of men together in that. So, Excellent. galaxy brain, there you go. Yep, love it, love it. And see, the, yes, that's fun. Um, and, and this is the thing is as well, like the, this, um, the ambiguity is purposeful. It's an invitation to think, more deeply about the world that that, that Tolkien has created. Um, and, and I think um, I find it frustrating that given, one, the budget and the technical and craft capabilities and, and expertise that they had um, for this movie, um, the fact that they didn't engage with this more completely, um, you know, this idea of taking um, Aragorn, who represents Gondor, and each growing together and, and, and coming into their kingship, not just literally as the figure of the king, but as becoming a kingdom again, no longer ruled by the stewards um, or kings who are basically feckless morons, um, but a different feckless moron who we are meant to like. Um, and, you know, these are two things that if you, via the magical cinematic art of montage or other things, I'm not a filmmaker, I can't do these things as well as Peter Jackson, um, but, you know, there are ways to show that these two things go hand in hand um, to bolster Gondor because... In Return of the King in particular, there's a really serious problem about the sort of debasement of Gondor. And by the time you get to the end of Return of the King, it's not clear to me why Aragorn would ever want to rule 
over a kingdom of like barbaric fools um, and just like blown out wasted cities like Gondor. Um, <laughs> Gondor just seems like the kind of place you'd like nuke and restart. Um, to avoid that, you could say, hey, look, Aragorn looks like shit. So does Gondor. But these two things, they're going to grow together. They're going to have their Christian girl Autumn be handed a cool sword and they're going to um, go riding into their Abercrombie and Fitch um, photo shoot together. And it's going to be great. Um, linking those two things symbolically, really developing the two of them, um, both independently and together under the guise of the sort of ambiguity uh, uh, or, or um, broader interpretation of, of this poem that they are making good use of um, in the movie already, this would all really serve to strengthen the movie. And yet, um, and yet they didn't. Um, and so it's just one of those things that I find frustrating. But the reason I bring it up um, not just because they use it in this scene, but because I think a lot of the poetry and songs that are in um, the books often get like kind of brushed aside by people. Um, and, you know, they are hefty. It is it is a bit of a slog to get through them sometimes. Like, I won't deny that. But I think there is um, uh, there's a lot of fun and there's a lot of value in, in, in going in and reading them with sort of the broadest um, interpretation and thinking about how they relate to other things in the books and and. Um, you know, for Tolkien, a linguist and a, and a, and a linguist studying um, a form of a language where the primary method, the primary evidence um, and the primary method of understanding that language comes from a poem, i.e. Beowulf, um, what he would have been thinking about and why he would have been including those poems and those songs in a novel that he's writing. And it's, it's, it's a fun exercise. It's a useful exercise. Um, and I think it will really help to sort of enliven and enrich um your understanding your imagination your conception of middle earth um in some ways far beyond what even the, the sort of heavily visual um capabilities of the movie are so that's my that's my pitch there yeah no i think that's all spot on i never really thought about this poem like at all really other than when it's <laughs> spoken here um but i really like drawing it out how it applies to the much larger world here and not just aragorn um, it almost goes back to our original, you know, analysis of these movies as this is the American individualist, uh, the rugged individualism of these movies kind of like shining through, whereas there is something here that can be interpreted as more collective or more communal, rather. Um, and it's just, hey, it's actually this one guy who is all these things and his sword, possibly. <laughs> So it is going to take a little bit of time before we get back to our like elvish names at the end of episodes. But we did have some people sign up during our little interim, which thank you so much. It's always appreciative when we get sign ups when we're not putting out new episodes, but we are back. Um, so I'd like to give a shout out to Merla Hightower, um, hopefully related to Allison Hightower from House of the Dragon, but I am not sure about that. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Yay, we did it. We're back. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycatmypod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you'll get early access to episodes and all sorts of other bonus stuff. I've been Manu, also known as Nuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. And I've been Emily, also known as J.R. Tweeting, which is where I will be on Twitter, where I will be scribbling Gollum smut into the margins of all of Arwen's books to justify her throwing them on the ground like she does here. And toasting a pint <laughs> to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd. 
Oh God, what's his Elvish name? Uh, we'll call him the Hip Hopopotamus uh, in honor of Flight of the Concords for this, aka DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.